Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Ida Volk, and you're listening to a special episode of World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And today, we're bringing you a special extra episode. I'm speaking to Leonid Volkov, Chief of Staff to the jailed Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, about the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's energy and hunger blackmail, and the prospects for the opposition movement. So thanks very much for being here. Can you start off by telling us how is Alexei Navalny doing? He was recently moved to a high security prison. What's his condition at the moment? Well, his condition is not good because he's imprisoned and it's not a place where you want to be. That's quite a like, run-down prison, like far from Moscow. So you definitely don't want to be there. And they tried to force him into doing 10 hours a day of forced labor in very bad conditions. He resisted, he refused, which should have made him punished which didn't happen, which means it's still Putin's personal management of the situation. So he's not treated like a regular inmate. He is treated according like to very special rules that Kremlin defines for him. Mentally, like physically, his fit, he works a lot. We are able to maintain contact with the lawyers, uh, which gives him also like the understanding of what's going on. So we, we are able to convey news to him, to get his feedback, he is actually still very actively working as an acting head of our organization. So he's not only like a symbol, like a moral leader of the protest, but he also um, takes all the like strategic level decisions. Are you worried that he could become seriously ill and perhaps die under these difficult conditions in prison? Of course we are. Because he's there in, in prison, in custody of that very people who tried to kill him two years ago. So, of course, that's not a comfortable situation. What we can do, that's the question, to do whatever he asks us to do, to make the work of the Anti-Corruption Foundation as visible and as efficient as possible. And, of course, to keep... Alexei himself and his story, so high profile, like not to let him be forgotten. In light of the way he's been treated and the let's very dim prospects of him ever being released, certainly as long as Putin is in power, was it the right decision for him to return? First of all, the prospects of him being released are not dim. It's very clear that he never will be released when Putin is in power. And it was very clear for him when he returned to Moscow. But everything that Putin does actually 
decreases the mathematical expectation of the time which Putin will spend in power. Putin committed a terrible, a grave mistake on February 24th when he decided to invade Ukraine, not only because it's a war crime, but because, of course, Putin dramatically shortened his term. I can't imagine how, after the war, whatever the outcome will be, Putin will be able to consolidate his elite, to stabilize the situation once again. Putin has mastered quite a fine-tuned system of management of his political elite. He was able to maintain conflict between members of his elite so that he himself was very necessary for all of them as a supreme arbiter and judge of these conflicts. This system exists no more. No one is happy with Putin. His oligarchs are unhappy because they've lost everything. His government officials are unhappy because their lifestyle is completely ruined. They can't anymore fly private jet with their mistresses to, to Courchevel every winter and so on, so on. So his military are also very unhappy because he promised them a brilliant victory based on their very wrong intel. So he promised them a military parade on Hrishatik Street in Kiev in four days after the invasion. Never happened. So, of course, now, when the war is still ongoing, and he's like the supreme commander and so on, he keeps control over the situation. He keeps his grip on the power. But after everything's over, with everyone so unhappy, with the economy in decay, he will face an enormously complicated challenge, like to rebuild this balance. And I believe he will fail. So, before the war, we could have expected that kind of the most probable scenario for Russia would be like a just a very slow stagnation, like 20 years or whatever medicine would allow, 20 years of elderly Putin in power, but still strong enough not to be removed, like Franco in Spain, like Salazar in Portugal. Franco was there for 39 years. No one loved him, no one supported him, but he was strong enough not to loosen his grip on the power. This was a very probable scenario. Putin multiplied the probability of this scenario by zero when he invaded Ukraine. So we didn't know how and when Putinism will come to an end, but it will come like much sooner then it would be probable before the war has started. So, in this regard, we're very optimistic about Alexei's perspective. Yes, clearly he will not get out of prison until Putin is in Kremlin. Russia is a country too small for these two men, but he will come out of prison quite soon. And to the second part of your question, you can question some decision, if it's a mistake or not, if there was an alternative. Two years ago, or like in January 2021, there was no alternative. We never had a discussion. Never, ever anyone has considered an option of Alexei not returning to Russia. He did what he had to do. He did the only things that was possible for him as a Russian politician and leader of Russian opposition. So there are no regrets or there are no, there is no discussion if there was a mistake because it was a forced move the only possible decision.
almost everyone prominent in the opposition movement in Russia has been forced to emigrate. And those who have refused to emigrate, such as Ilya Yeshin, have been jailed. Has Putin succeeded in crushing the opposition movement in Russia since he invaded Ukraine? First of all, we don't have to put the carriage ahead of the horse. Putin started to uh, crush the opposition movement before the war, in order to make the war possible. It was Putin's idea that he has to eliminate the fifth column, so to say. He has to destroy the opposition so that there is no organized protest. So Putin went after the Anti-Corruption Foundation three years ago, this day, by the way, like the unfamous Anti-Corruption Foundation case like the money laundering case when we have been accused of money laundering has been launched on August 3rd, 2019. It was the case which had a goal to make the operation of the foundation impossible. Like all our bank accounts have been blocked, all our regional offices have been raided and so on. And then multiple more cases, like many opposition leaders jailed and this all happened before the war. And now, retroactively, we understand. Putin wanted to make the political field entirely clear. Did he succeed? Of course not. Putin succeeded to make the public expression of dissent impossible. So you cannot say you, you don't support war. You cannot say you can post anything online about the war, which is not in line with the official propaganda. You cannot rally. You cannot go to a strike or whatever. This is not anymore possible. No organizational structure of like opposition movement exists. Did it change the way people think of Putin and the war? No. So Putin made the public expression of dissent impossible, but the dissent has not gone. If the feeling can't be expressed and can't be channeled by people such as Navalny, then it's it has been crushed. Well, it, Naval, Navalny expresses his feelings. His, he regularly posts on his social media through the lawyers. So he dictates his posts and the lawyers would put them on his Instagram and Twitter. And so does Yashin. And so does Karam Urza. And so does Pivovarov. And so does everyone else. And this is the audience of those opposition voices both from within the country and from abroad, is growing. And we've built a huge media operation out of Vilnius, our like popular politics, our channels that we've launched on February 24th, on the first day of the war. And it's like as popular as our media never used to be. Like we reach 12 to 15 million unique users in Russia every month, which is at least twice the reach we used to have before the war. There is a lot of demand for oppositional content. There is a lot of demand for decent opinion. And this potential, this protest potential, which is huge, it can't be realized now in terms of a huge rally. Yeah, because of the enormous risks, because everyone understands that for rallying against Putin, they will be sent to prison for 15 years, which means this protest potential is there in place and it is waiting for the change of condition, for an appropriate condition, or for some like black swan to fly over. This is an example I gave many times, but it still makes sense. Like the Arab Spring in Tunisia in March 2011 has been sparked like by, by a random event because the public opinion was ready for that. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. You've spoken of Russia having tried to use hunger as a weapon against the West to try and blackmail the West, the prospect of famine in countries, for example, in North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa because of the effects of limiting grain exports from Ukraine and also from Russia. And when that failed, you argued that Russia turned to energy blackmail. We're both here in Berlin. The topic of energy, Russia limiting its energy exports to the West, to Germany, is a huge, huge question at the moment. And there's huge uncertainty about this coming winter. Can you explain your thinking on this issue and what you think, how you see the issue? What, what people probably don't understand is that this is Putin who desperately needs a truce. This is Putin who needs peace talks now because his 
ability to continue the aggressive invasion is exhausted. He needs time for hidden mobilization or even for an open mobilization to train the troops to refresh the munition. He is on the edge of losing Kherson, which is the only regional capital he was able to conquer. So Ukrainians are efficiently cutting Kherson off supply lines over the Dnieper River, which could lead to an effective encirclement of huge Russian troops there. A truce will create a new political reality, a green line, a temporary solution which might remain there for many years. Because, like Putin, like with the Minsk agreements. Yes, yeah. So, because, so it will give Putin more years to get ready for a new wave of invasion which will be even more brutal and bloody. Friction is much lower when the wheel is already rolling. But when you have to start, you have to overcome a lot of friction. So now, of course, the public opinion in Europe doesn't like the fact there is war and there are Ukrainian refugees and so on. But it's like very supportive of Ukraine, which is fighting against the aggressor. When there is a truce, when the war is like over and European politicians will happily report it to their voters that they've been managed to stop the war. Even if Ukraine builds up militarily, they will not be able to overcome this friction to start again, to launch a reconquista. Because the public opinion in Europe will be very much supportive of the idea that the war should not have should not be started again. And Ukraine very much depends on Western support. So once there is such a temporary break, the situation will become very bad for Ukraine, which would then have lost a lot of territory, like 30% of its economy, enormous amount of tax income. And we'll have to get ready to a new war, but only to a defensive one will not be able to reconquer some parts of its territory. So this is now Putin who needs a break. He would never admit it. So he's trying to achieve it through diplomatic channels. It's not possible for him to make a peace treaty now with the Ukrainians. It will not be accepted by Ukrainian society. Ukraine, unlike Russia, is a democracy and there is a small gap between love and hatred. And once Zelensky would agree to something that is not accepted by the society, he will be ousted. Uh, Zelensky has to keep going. So Putin is trying to address those who he believes have a lot of influence over Kyiv. And that's why he artificially created this grain exports crisis. Literally, telling Scholz, Macron, Draghi, like, you guys will get like 10 million refugees from Africa if you don't push Zelensky, if you don't force him uh, to sign a truce. Putin didn't succeed. European politicians went to Kyiv, talked to Zelensky, and proved that they are ready for a value-based principled policy. 
which is very good news, by the way, for Europe and so on. This probably has cost Draghi his seat, also because Italy would be the first country to accept a new wave of migrants. And it's a very painful question of Italian politics. But Putin also failed. And that's why he actually suddenly changed his mind and signed this experts deal with Turkey and so on, because he is trying to score some points. Like, okay, look, I am I'm ready to for negotiations, I'm ready to make a compromise, first of all. And second, okay, blocking Ukrainian experts would also mean blocking Russian experts and blocking Russian ability to sell a grain which Russia also desperately needs. So this plan has been forgotten. Putin's plan A has failed, but he has many plan Bs. And his plan B is, yeah, if we if he was not successful pushing European politicians, European leaders directly, let's try to do it indirectly through their voters. Let's create enormous propaganda campaign of fear. You all guys will freeze if you not force your politicians to force Zelensky to stop fighting. That's very clear on Putin's agenda now. The problem is that his threat is quite realistic. It's well settled in public opinion, well supported not only by those useful idiots being on Putin's payroll, but also it has some genuine support. It's still based on a lot of manipulation. Germany for instance, relies on Russian gas on 14%, 1-4, like 14% of Germany's energy balance is Russian gas. It's a lot, but it's not dramatic. It is not true that Europe can't survive the winter without Russian gas. Economy will suffer. There will be always enough gas for households, but it might happen if Russia cuts gas supplies entirely, and if the winter is cold, then okay, there will be always enough gas to to heat the houses, but maybe there will be shortages for huge consumers of energy, like for huge industrial enterprises. That's survivable. Uh, and actually, European countries know how to deal with this corona crisis learn them how to handle forced blackouts, like forced shortages, forced interruptions of operation of huge enterprises and so on. Compensation packages, relief packages and so on. This is just this one winter. Next winter will be already much easier. And even this winter is not necessarily a disaster, it depends a lot of temperature, of its severity, and of actually like alternative sources, which are already getting available. So Putin is very clearly blackmailing. He's very clearly running a huge disinformation campaign, but it resonates with some genuine support for it. So my take on this is that Ukrainians are very time constrained now with their military operations, because if Putin's campaign will be successful, then in a couple of months, public opinion in European countries will shift dramatically, so that European leaders will be forced to, to constrain their unlimited support for Ukraine. If Ukraine is able to achieve significant military victories now, 
if they if they manage to take her son over very soon, which I consider to be quite realistic, then of course it will reinforce their argument that they can win the war. And so they have to receive as much help as possible in their desire to just win the war and get rid of Putin. You've spoken several times about how you think Ukraine can win the war, the, the military effort that, that they're doing. Should, should Ukraine resist a, a ceasefire because it would make a temporary situation permanent, as you've spoken about before? Yeah, yeah that that's the main fear. I believe everyone in Ukraine understands every ceasefire would create just a new political reality, which will be there for many years. Alexei Navalny wants to be president of Russia. And he will be. And he will be. If Russia succeeds in, for example, annexing the regions of Kherson and Saporizhia and Luhansk, would, how would Alexei Navalny as president of Russia deal with these? Would he return these territories to Ukraine? Would he return Crimea to Ukraine? First of all, I don't think Russia will succeed in annexing those territories. I'm very skeptical about their perspectives in this direction. Even if they organize some fake mock referendum, the practical control over this territories doesn't seem to me realistic. I think, once again, the sequence of the events will be different. Alexei Navalny will not have to return the territories because they will be returned first and then he will become president. So when the war will be lost, when Putin will lose the war, and this is very realistic, then there will be a huge like wave of national reflection of what actually happened. When everyone will finally see that the king is naked, this will be like quite a drama. Like the Putinization of Russia will be quite a painful experience through which the country will have to come through. But as a part of this experience, the country will have to recognize that everything that Putin has done since 2014, starting with the annexation of Crimea, launched this chain of events that led the country to a national catastrophe. And when the country will realize it, then the country will also become ready to elect Alexei Navalny as president. So I, I really believe that kind of like the sequence of events will be like this. The war will be lost. There will be like a huge elite conflict. Putin will be removed. Then the new elite will try to stabilize the situation and will try to like move towards the West, like to, to rebuild the, the relations, to relaunch the economy, which will include returning the annexed territories, if probably not. Which and they will fail because Putin's elite will will be very weak. And during this process, at some point of time also like propaganda will be removed. The country well, it, it will be similar to the Nazification of, uh, of Germany after 1945. So at some point of time, like the country will realize what actually happened. And then at some point of time, everyone will also see that annexation of Crimea, which everyone, almost everyone applauded to, have has been also like the first of the grave mistakes that led to the, this catastrophe. Okay, at some point of time, during this sequence of events, we also have a competitive election, which we believe Navalny will be able to win. And by that point of time, there will be already a national compromise that we also need to hand 
Crimea back in order to, well, rebuild peace and trust and international relations. I might sound too optimistic here. I realize it. But this is once again a consequence of the mistake which Putin made having started this war. Before the war, the Crimea issue has been a very painful one because there was genuine support in Russian society and whoever would become like the next Russian president would face enormous troubles dealing with this issue. Crimea as a part of Ukraine, according to international law, we admitted, and we admitted this always, like from the very first day of annexation, if you read what Alexei Navalny posted on his live journal, he didn't have a website, but at that point of time, he posted on his live journal in March 2014, he condemned the annexation of Crimea in strongest terms. But the political reality was also that we saw like an almost anonymous support for annexation of Crimea in the Russian society, and every Russian politician had to deal with that. So imagine Alexei Navalny would, by miracle, become a president of Russia in 2018, and on one hand, he would have wanted to give Crimea back in order to get rid of sanctions and to reinstate like international credibility. On the other hand, he would have to realize that at the, in this situation, there will be probably like a lot of confrontation within the country, a lot of protest, and he might be ousted. There, there was like a real conflict before February 24th, 2022. But after that, not anymore, because a very painful and expensive lesson has been taught or is being taught to Russian population that once you start with Sudetenland and with Austria, you end up with a full-scale war and military catastrophe. Just finally, I listened to an interview that you gave the day after the invasion on the 25th of February, in which you said that far-reaching sanctions should be imposed by the West on Russia. There should be oligarch sanctions, all the kind of economic sanctions that we have seen, including on energy, oligarchs' mansions have been seized and so on. And you said that might force the elites into changing, forcing the Kremlin into a different direction. That hasn't happened. But do you think that there should be sanctions relief in exchange for the Russian government changing its position on certain issues. So, for example, if it agreed to give up territory in Ukraine that it has, that it has conquered in exchange for sanctions relief, would that be the right approach? I could only second to what Olaf Scholz said. There should be no sanction relief while there is Putin in Kremlin. Putin cannot be trusted. He has no credibility, negative credibility. No agreement has to be made with him ever, because we know he's a bastard who doesn't respect his own word. You cannot conclude any agreement with him. You cannot lead any negotiation with him, because he will always only try to violate this agreement in the future, at the very first moment. So any idea of like sanction relief for a better policy, for a better Putin, is a wrong idea because there is no such thing as a better Putin. Of course, there will be sanction relief, but it can only be discussed with a new Russian leadership. Do you worry that position makes you unpopular with 
the Russian people who are going to suffer the effect of these sanctions. They're going to suffer shortages, a pretty severe economic recession, possibly the worst since the 1990s. They are, al they are already. They are already uh, suffering. And this is a large part of our job, using our channels, using our media channels to explain to them who has to be blamed. We try hard, and I would say quite successful, to explain to them that they're economic situation has to be blamed on Putin, which, which is vicious and true. Leonid Volkov, thanks for your time. Thank you. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and rate us so that other people can find this podcast. Our producers have been Adrian Bradley and Milan Prusen. We'll be back on Monday. I'm Ida Rock. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.